face every day Breaks down easy Fits into a prey The child can carry it Do it no harm Hi, this is Michael Azarad, Editor-in-Chief of The Talk House, and welcome to The Talk House Music Podcast. In the late 70s, Andy Gill and John Langford were schoolmates at the University of Leeds in England. That was where Andy started a band called Gang of Four, and John started a band called The Mekons. And those bands went on to great things, such as helping to invent post-punk, and just generally being iconically great bands. John and Andy are also two of the smartest musicians I've ever met. So we thought we'd put these two old friends together and have them discuss some of the roots of British punk and post-punk. Formed in 1977, the Mekons are possibly the longest-running post-punk band. Their music has encompassed punk rock, country music, and dub reggae, and they've released many excellent albums and are lots of fun at parties. The band was recently the subject of a documentary called Revenge of the Mekons. Legend has it that a member of the Mekons actually named the band Gang of Four. In the late 70s and early 80s, Gang of Four made some classic albums of life-changing, canonical, neo-Marxist post-punk, like Entertainment, Solid Gold, and Songs of the Free. They've influenced everybody from Rage Against the Machine to St. Vincent. They're like, important. With Andy Gill as the sole remaining original member, they released an album this year called What Happens Next. Here, Andy and John traced the evolution of the concept of punk rock as it traveled north through England, up to Leeds, and how it inspired their respective bands. Punk's chief message, according to these guys? You can really go anywhere you want with it. They spoke via Skype, John in Chicago, Andy in London. We had a technical glitch, so you'll hear a change in the audio halfway through. Here we go. Well, we were in we were in Leeds, which I think was a, a strange place to be. And the fir- very first day I went to Leeds University to study fine art, I came up from South Wales and I went to a freshers conference. And the people who picked me up at the freshers conference to show me around the art department and sort of the Leeds three, Leeds two area were uh, Andy Corrigan and Mark White. And they became they became the singers in the Mekons when the Mekons formed a little bit later. And Andy was very interested that I had a drum kit. And he said, you might want to bring your drum kit up to Leeds. I didn't have it with me. And he said, there's a friend of mine. He's got a band and they're going to be a cross between the Velvet Underground and Dr. Feelgood. And I, that was the very first day I got to Leeds. And I thought, that sounds good, except I, I know who Dr. Feelgood are, but I'm not quite sure who the Velvet Underground are because I was quite naive at the time. <laughs> so, but so the, what, that was the, the gang of people, four, obviously. And the first people you met was were Mark White and Andy Corrigan. They, and they then we sort of got bored with looking around the university, yeah. and they they took me around Kevin's house where I met Kevin and Mick Wixie. <laughs> it was really strange. It was just like my whole future was decided in like kind of one random moment. I know, isn't it weird? Yes, very strange. If I'd, gone to, if I'd gone to Reading University, I might be, you know, painting portraits of the Queen or something. Now. Who knows? Yeah, like um, like uh, Mr. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Henry Me. Henry Me with his velvet jacket and his immaculate. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
and his his uh, full of bollocks conversation. Exactly. But you were Andy was there. You were there like two years before me, I think. Um. So was I got there in seventy six October seventy six. Oh yeah. Just, yeah. Just as the punk rock thing was sort of breaking in the new, you know, tabloid press. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, you know, when, um, yeah, when I listened to the first thing that, that Gang of Four did, it does sound quite punk rock. Um, you know, it's sort of quite quite fast and a bit thrashy and stuff, but it it very quickly morphed into something else and and i always thought about you know i mean i always thought about the sort of the, the the big classic punk bands like the damned and the pistols and so on the british ones um i i totally enjoyed them um but i always thought it was just a bit like sort of faster heavy metal kind of thing um yeah, heavy metal with its trousers taken in Yes, yes, um, and perhaps less latex, but um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think you know, with with, um, with the Mekons, the they, they they took one aspect of of punk and sort of ran with it, and and the the DIY thing was very important with the Mekons. The amateurism was very important. I mean, and and to be celebrated and uh, and displayed, and um, and the ideas side of it. So it it, it was to me it was it, it took little aspects of sort of punk and took them took them completely somewhere else. And you know, and I loved all the things that that went on. You know, that the the odd, the strange. Uh, dialogue between Mark Weiss and Andy Corrigan and stuff in the beginning um, but with with uh, Gang of Four I think you know we, we, I had this idea that I wanted to be sort of tight and groovy and, and funky and but sort of contain elements of noise as Andy Corrigan said like the Velvet Underground and, and so on and so I, I, I sort of thought I'll give you an example. The when the Pistols came to play at Leeds, did you go to that, John? You know what? I didn't go to that concert. <clears throat> Neither did I. <laughs> really? I thought you must have gone. I I wasn't bothered. I and, thought. And, I just thought it was just some London fashion rubbish. I thought at the time. You know. Well, no. I mean, I, I knew exactly what it was, and uh, you know, there was. Um, Corrigan and and Mark and I expect I don't know exactly who but I expect Kevin you know Kevin definitely went because he had a yeah. tampon yeah he, he had a tampon dangling from his ear and apparently oh dear. people came up to him people asked him if he was a punk rocker and he, he'd never actually heard the term at the time or so he claimed because he'd never heard the so term he, so so he claimed yeah um, and Andy Corrigan had a razor blade earring didn't he or was it a penis. <laughs> a, razor blade, a razor blade penis i think it was yes but there was he was he was photographed and he was put in the uh leeds what was it called evening post or evening even whatever yeah, yeah. um and, and, it, post. and and there was corrigan and the and what it said it said un, underneath it said this punk rocker wore a 
razor blade ear- earring or a penis earring. I can't remember which one it was. I'm going to have to contact Corrigan and ask him. But um, so anyway, I, I digress. But people felt what? it uh, sort of necessary to go and check it out. And I'd, you know, I'd heard sort of in my mind, I'd heard Doctor Feelgood in 1974, and punk rock was 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 good. But I didn't need I didn't need to check it out. I didn't need to have a look. I didn't need to have a listen. I sort of knew. So I went to the cinema instead. Weren't you in New York though the summer before that? You and, in, you sem- and John. in seventy in seventy six, John King and me went to went went to New York and hung out at CBGBs and stuff and with with Mary Harron and met all these people like John Cale and and the people from television and people in Patty Smith's band and, and all, that kind of, all that kind of stuff. And, and I think, I mean, that was very influential on us because we sort of said, well, it, all these very nice, ordinary people are doing it and we've got probably as good, if not better ideas ourselves, so we should be getting on with it when we get back to the UK. I think that was a lot of what went through our mind. I know. I mean, for me, just the fact that it was just Corrigan saying Velvet Underground and Dr. Feelgood. Looking back on that now, you know, with a huge historical perspective, those mm. two bands, you know, incredibly, incredibly crucial bands. It was kind of like, I mean, almost any band, I think it was, a, you know, not necessarily the Gang of Four, but almost any band at that time, if it listened to those two bands, it was such a major signpost. Yeah. To go some to go somewhere else rather than the kind of yeah what was actually, what was actually happening in the seventies. I mean, I I grew up you know in South Wales at a time when there was just this sort of like rumours of something called pub rock, and then pub like rock, kind yeah. of they were sort of, but they they never really came down our way. And then I used to see bands like you know bands used to want to take take to go see Genesis or Yes. And it was all incredibly mm. tedious to me. I, could, I just hated it. I mm. really didn't like it. And then there was this kind of hawkwind kind of people doing a lot of drugs and traveling around the country and running away from school to be with hawkwind kind of thing, which yeah. mm. I kind of liked yeah. hawkwind, but it wasn't of great interest to me. But I felt a bit robbed at that time that there wasn't, you know, glam rock had been this thing that went on when I was about 12, 13, and I really... I really liked that, but it seemed like everything had gone. Like Bowie had gone to America, and Roxy Music had split up, and the bands yeah. that I, you know, interested me in the first place, everything had disappeared. So when punk rock happened, and it, it, it I mean, it was kind of like yeah, with the Sex Pistols. Once you got the idea of it, you almost didn't have to hear it. I, what, I never bought no, that exactly, record. exactly, yeah, yeah. It was just, it was just a kind of like right here we go then. You know, we, now we can totally do something. And yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, John King said a, a few years ago that uh, he was his daughter was talking about, you know, so what was music like back then? Then, and um, and he said, <laughs> Oh, you're gonna love you, you'll love this, and put on the, the Sex Pistols. And each, and he said, Oh, well, that's not very good, is it? And then put on the next one, and oh, maybe the next one, and you know, and none of them actually were that kind of gripping, you know, and uh, so it's sort of spoil his memory of 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 it being a great a, a great thing but but it, when i sort of the stuff that from 
apart from you know, Dr. Feelgood, you know, where, when, when I was younger, you know, I went to see uh, Captain Beefheart uh, at the Albert Hall, which was a quite an ex- quite a good experience, and yeah. and the band playing at uh, Wembley, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were headlining, but I wasn't that interested in them. I actually, fell asleep, but but the, the, I was there. I was there for the band, but and then um, Bob Marley at the at the Lyceum with that that live um, thing, and those things had kind of you know, a lot more of a kind of effect on me than anything that came along. Well, certainly any of the, any of the British kind of punk rock, you know, that didn't really kind of do much for me. No, I had the same thing. I had the television album and I, mm. and I was, re- I was really into that, but people were buying singles. Like the fir- I mean, we used to listen to the first clash album. I remember quite a lot around Chrome. Yes, we Hat. did. We did. Yes. Yeah. Very and much. It, so. And it was, but it was, I always thought, you know, it sounded a bit weedy. You know, com- 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 no, even just compared to what the Gang of Four sounded like in their very earliest gigs, it was like mm. it was definitely something more kind of substantial and kind of like immense going on. You know, I don't mm. know. I just, I always thought that I, I, I think being in the north of England was a big thing as well because I think whatever messages were being sent out in London about what punk rock was by the time they got up the M1 or up the M M5 to Manchester or M6 to Manchester, they. Everyone had kind of t- got a totally different take on it, and yeah, it, that's right. And it wasn't so much just about this kind of two-dimensional, speeded-up heavy metal fashion statement and mm. chest-pumping anarchy. And there was there were all these bands that suddenly saw it as an opportunity just to do whatever you wanted to do, and yeah, it was just like a signal that says, "All right, the rules are all changed, and now you can do, you can kind of make your own entertainment." And for me, like yeah. I said, as someone who felt a bit robbed by the nineteen seventy four, seventy five, seventy six period when I didn't, I felt like really up for something to be happening, and it was mm-hmm. just a bunch of old hippies wandering around smoking pot. Yeah. Um, punk was great and then once we started i mean i had no intention of going to leeds to be in a band but it was just like it mm, swept mm. us by immediately we were swept up in it and you know the fact that the gang of four had a, a rehearsal room in the film society offices above the fenton was yeah. or next to the fenton was fantastic for the mecons because we didn't even have to have equipment we could just have a few pints and then <laughs> as you as you say in the movie i saw the movie the other night the mecons movie have you seen it i haven't seen it yet no no i'm looking uh, forward to seeing yeah. it that's, you actually say that, you know, that we would just you would go for a pint and we would scurry up the stairs and pick up your instruments and no, that's right, well, exactly, that's exactly what it was. I mean, it was it was you know, and we were this inverted commas collective, you know. So um, um, I don't know why we sort of had more equipment than you did. I think, um, but but yeah, we, but 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 that's how exactly how it was. And that that, that thing you said about you know punk rock's kind of main function was anything goes and like the you know the walls have been kicked in do whatever you want that that was very much that that's often what i say as well you know that you know that the for me the main achievement was that that you can any subject is up for grabs you don't have to be like other bands you can really go anywhere you want with it and and i think that was sort of the main kind of take away from it as they say these days and i think you know the, the the think of the bands up in the north of england that we sort of shared bills with i mean there was 
band like the Rosillos were the first gig, you know, the, the Mekons, mm. the first pop up gig the Mekons did, where we got a record contract out of it, which was entirely bizarre because mm. we just thought the Gang of Four should have a record out and not us. But Bob Lass picked the Mekons because he saw us. That's but right. We'd be in, you know, we played in Manchester one night with the, there was, I think the Slits were there and um, Cabaret Voltaire. We were on Fast Product with the mm. Human League, who were purely. Mm synth-based experimental type group when mm. they, before they became a pop band uh, it yeah. was just a time of great opportunity and and i think in the north of england removed from that kind of tight walls of what was punk and what wasn't up there it was kind of like anything could be punk do you remember the worst yes i do I, and like, they were uh, like they were worse than the mekons it was fantastic yeah. and but do you remember <laughs> i played but do you remember i played drums with them yeah, that's right. Yeah, in the Tartan yeah. Bar. <laughs> in the Tartan Bar, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were the worst as well. They were fantastic. <laughs> but enjoyably so. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, so. How does it affect me today? I still think you can do whatever you want. That's as simple as that. I still think. That moment, and I've talked to a bunch of people, you know, over the years, like uh, Adrian Sherwood, you know, said the mm. same same thing as well. Suddenly, punk happened, but he didn't th- feel like he had to be a punk, but it just gave him the it gave him license to do things and feel like it was, you know, worthwhile rather than mm-hmm. feeling like it was not allowed. And I think in the mid seventies, music was the domain of people who've been to music college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but then, you know, we're on tricky territory there because we've got degrees. I did go back and get my degree. I did. I didn't, well, I thought you got it first. What, you didn't get it first time? No, I, I took a year. I, when we signed the Virgin, I, me and Tom just packed it in. Ah, of course. Right, yeah. because you were, uh, yeah. I always forget. I always forget that you you were a year or two, yeah, younger than me. Yeah, I always forget that. So you uh, finished. I was me you finished in. Was did you finish in seventy nine? Um, seventy eight. I think it was seventy nine. You know, because what happened was, um, I said to everybody, "Look, I'm going to do. I'm going to finish this degree. So I'm just. I'm really happy to kind of." do as many gigs as as we can but i'm gonna work during the day and um and i think so i we, we had to you know I, I did a final exhibition what was it like may may 79 yeah we jumped in the transit drove down straight to onto the, straight on the houseboat straight onto that houseboat <laughs> um, <laughs> where where we lived which is sort of like you know sort of 24 hour party people houseboat and then this was the clever thing you know rob war had got us this houseboat in the you know in chelsea and we had to go across to the furthest reaches of east london every day to go to the studio to record entertainment and then we'd have to we'd drive back at night to continue the party and so and then we did that for four or five weeks and then we got on a plane to america and did our first tour in america so seriously that was all the same time right it was all the same time yeah yeah that summer we we went we left we were hanging around on the houseboat for no apparent reason but mm-hmm. uh, then we went i remember up, then we went up to uh 
we went up to the Manor and recorded the Mekons' first album uh, in '79. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that was like Virgin must really like us if they're sending us to the Manor. But of course, the Manor was just empty that week, and then they could charge us loads of money and put it against our advance. Yeah. And, uh, and they they got their studio filled up, so it was completely inappropriate and stupid thing to do. But yeah, yeah those, that's that's what we did in those days: stupid and inappropriate. Was things. uh was was um Mick managing you in inverted commas at that point? Yeah, I mean Mick yeah. was he was he was just our mate really, and but, but he yeah. was sort of in, he was good he was good on a sort of. Um, spiritual level mick he used to rally yes. the troops when we were feeling down he would rally us and yeah. make us think it was worth doing and then yeah you know but it, it, that that first album was kind of a killer you know to have we've been kept we're hanging about we've been most of the songs we did have been written in 77 or something and yeah then still they still wanted to record all those songs in 79 and we just wanted to do something else but we didn't know what else to do so it was yeah, odd. yeah. Yeah, and um, the next one was the um, the one with the painting on the front, wasn't it? Yeah, that's when that Mick was directly responsible for that, and I know you. That was your idea for the cover, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was my idea for the cover. Um, Andy Andy Corrigan going up into the fine art library with a razor blade, and we found the book of Casper David Friedrich. Casper David Friedrich. Yeah, yeah. Then we went. I went. <laughs> and coughed loudly as the razor blade went through the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Art was the vandalism. Cover. Yeah, it was going to be called. It was going to be called. It's the Mekon's boss, and we were going to write. Um, it's the Mekon's boss on every in a speech bubble coming out of the the abyss. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and then they ordered. They worked out they needed two thousand rather than a thousand. We we're just going to do a thousand of that album, and then mm. it turned out that they had pre-orders for two thousand. So yeah. we said, "Fuck it, we can't be bothered to write on two thousand records." <laughs> but, but what was it? On the doesn't front? say anything. Nothing. It's just the Casper David Friedrich picture. It doesn't say okay. anything. Because I remember it's the Mekons boss on the cover of the one I had, or whatever. I probably wrote that on it. <laughs> maybe okay, maybe that's what it was. Because I, yeah, I thought that was printed. Okay, uh, and it was a it was a prototype. <laughs> yeah, and that had uh, Corporal Chalky on it, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that was a that was a really amazing time because we, we were we'd been fired by Virgin. Oh no, we weren't. Hadn't been. We started making that record. We were still on Virgin, mm-hmm. but they they told then us they heard time. some of the stuff that you were pr- proposing to record. Oh yeah, and then we were. They were out of there as fast as possible. Likewise, Rough Trade, who said they would, if we ever left Virgin, they would put out our next album. They heard it, and they were like, "No thanks." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shame because I, I think that stuff's really great. <laughs> so do I. So do I. You know, I think um, I think it's my favourite stuff in a way. You know, that second album. I think it's uh, well. It was just yeah. very. It was there was it was very low stakes in a way because we already kind of twigged it. Everybody hated us, so it was, mm. it was it was nice. It was really freeing when we thought we were just making this for totally for our own entertainment.
I was describing the new Mekons album and how we were going to try and do it. The, the punchline for our advertising splurge will be why um, does it spend why does it take more time to record an album than it does to listen to it? What would happen if it took the same length of time? Which is obviously ridiculous, but uh, we're going to sort of go all Luddite and um, record an album on one microphone, a, a venue in New York in front of a selected audience and uh, just bash out the songs uh, or, or whatever they are. They might not even be all songs. It might be something a little more strange than that, like a little weird little review with some strange noises and spoken word passages even I don't know not sure about the content yet but just the put, that was the idea and Andy was saying how he's like spending a lot of time on the last Gang of Four album doing tons of you know tweaking and working on it and, and that, that's kind of what the Mekons did on the last two albums we tried to use the new technologies that exist now uh, as a way to kind of like maybe conquer the geography issues we have because people live all on different continents but also you know the, the albums the one thing I loved doing it that way and sending stuff around and nothing everything was very fluid and nothing was really had to be pinned down you could just kind of like take things in all sorts of strange directions and reinvent things at the very last minute and add things when you felt like it but it was incredibly time-consuming, so we thought we'd better sort of go back yeah. to year zero for this one. <laughs> I mean, uh, if if you if you you know get there and get in a room and just spend a couple of days just playing songs again and again and again, I think you you know I think you can kind of get there that way as well. You know, I think the um, all the technology stuff adds more and more time to the to the to the problem you know um, it just it becomes more and more time consuming the more technology you've got once people got computers that was when the length of time to make an album expanded by three yeah yeah I remember, I remember Dick Taylor telling me that when the Pretty Things used to go in, the producer's job was to stand there looking at his watch and mm. say, can we try that one again? he go like, no, there's no time. We've got the Dave Clark Five coming in at two o'clock, so you better get this. <laughs> Have you got enough songs for an album yet? Yep, yeah, right, finished then. <laughs> I know, I know. Kind of, I remember going, um, going for being playing in uh, the John Peel session. And when we got in there, the producer was on the phone talking to someone and we um we started setting up we started we got the sound together the producer was still on the phone and i think after we'd recorded the first song he got off the phone and said hello but then got back on this back on the phone again after that so not and really occasionally looked at his watch and said okay that's that was it buffing <laughs> I can't. The producer, I, I can't remember his name. I can't remember his name. I just remember the experience. There was a bloke with a moustache called Roger who used to like a few drinks down the BBC club and wanted to get out there as fast as possible. Mm. And there was Dale mm. Dale Griffin who was Mott the Hoople's drummer. We did a couple of sessions. Oh, you got a good. He, you've got an amazing memory. Yeah, I can't remember any of them really. 
he just hated yeah. any band that I any band that I was involved in. He, you could see his face drop when I walked through the door because he knew it was going to mm. take much longer than it should. And, 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 but. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, hey, actually, with John the, fall, King, the fall, Sorry, go on. John, John King was was was. Um, kept telling me that he was talking to his stockbroker, which may or may not have been the truth. I, I don't know, but uh, John <laughs> King. Uh, Says he overheard something about you know, sell BT or something. <laughs> There's a great story about Mark Mark Riley being uh, Mark Smith from the Fall being in there and doing mm. a BBC session, and somebody said, "Is that Buffin from Mott the Hoople?" And the engineer said, "Yeah, but he's called Dale Griffin now, and whatever you do, don't call him Buffin." <laughs> and he spent the entire session calling him. Variations on buffing, buff lad, a buff. <laughs> Can you turn yeah. me up in the mouth, buff lad? Buff, a buff. <laughs> Which apparently uh, I've drove. Of course he would. Of course he would. He would do that, yeah. that mark. He would do that. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what? what you, got, you haven't said what you're up to then. Um, I think well, I said we were, we're doing a Mekon store in July. That's what I was saying. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was it. Yeah, you're talking Are about. You still, um, you're still touring it? Yeah, yeah. We just um, we did a month in America, a bit more than a month in March. Um, then we came back, and then we've just done eight days in uh, Europe. Um, in various places, ending in Zagreb, and basically got got back a couple of days ago. And then there's various gigs that we're doing in um, Germany and UK in the next couple of months, Manchester and stuff. Um, and we'll come back to America in the autumn. All right. Yeah. You coming back to Chicago? I don't know. Um, it's not, you know, we. That's just the, the that's the intention to come back. I mean, we definitely would um, hit some of the places that we, you know, didn't play last time, which which are many because America's in North North America's a big place. So um, yeah. Um, I mean, there'll be some places that we go back to, and and um, I mean, she, the Chicago gig was was really cool, and there was a lot of people, and it went you know went down well and all that. So where, where's your where's your painting coming from at this point in time? Um, it's sort of that's gone full circle as well right now because I got invited by the Country Music Hall of Fame to do some uh, work for them. They did a huge exhibit that opened in the end of March called um, Dylan Cash and the Nashville Cats, and they wanted a painting. Bob Dylan and and Johnny Cash, so I was like, oh, that sounds like an easy thing for me to do. But 
the exhibition is really amazing. It's incredible. I thought, you know, the Country Music Hall of Fame, I had a feeling it was a bit like kind of Garth Brooks, you know, mm-hmm. Travis at Disneyland or something. Mm-hmm. But it's this intense, intensely scholarly museum where they've really, they went for this idea of talking about Nashville in the 60s to sort of really debunk all the preconceived notions of it being this kind of hick town. And mm-hmm. it's actually the people who played there, like... Uh, uh, Lloyd Green and Charlie McCoy and Charlie Daniels were these incredible musicians and people flocked there and the whole di- hippie di- hippie kind of redneck divide of the 60s is a, a real kind of myth um, you think of the records that are made of I mean, Dylan made Blonde on Blonde in Nashville and Nashville Skyline mm. the same year, the same year I think in fact which is mm. kind of insane and, and, uh, yeah so I got That's to I got the paint so I did a painting of all these kind of unknown guys as well, you know, people that mm. everybody in the world who has a, a record that was recorded in the 60s has them in their record collection. But nobody really kind of knows who they are. And uh, it was fabulous. So I, I went down and they used the kind of style of the painting that I did as the sort of template for the whole exhibition. So there's bits of my kind of scratchy stuff and kind of edgings and lettering all over the whole country music hall of fame and the, the paintings a giant banner outside so it was all very nice and then they they said would you like to sing with them and i was like yeah i think i would like to do that so <laughs> i ended up singing two johnny cash songs on the stage at the country music hall of fame with david briggs norbert putnam lloyd green wayne moss who was the guy who played guitar on pretty woman which was Fantastic. Oh, and then Charlie, Charlie McCoy, when I met him, he says, Hey, John, are you British? And I said, Yeah, I'm British. Mm. He says, Well, listen to this. And he played me the theme to the Old Grey Whistle Test. But then I, I thought, <laughs> That's right, yeah, the Old Grey Whistle Test. He said, Well, that's me. And it was, it was him who played the theme. Oh, he the did it? Mm. Yeah, it was actually him. I'd talked to him for a long time. He's a really funny guy. And he's like, It's only about, he was 74. It was his birthday while I was there. And, they're all kind of like still playing. They're really at it. It's it was really amazing to meet them. And they each each one had a little, each one had a little booth. They did great things with the acoustics. So you could go into these little booths and you sonically cut off from everywhere else in the exhibition space. And you could hit all these buttons, and you'd see these guys would be playing. You know, there's oh they're playing there. They're playing on a Connie Smith track or some country track, and then next to it oh Aretha Franklin, oh Elvis, oh Neil Young, oh the Birds. You know, so it was the entire breadth of American music in the sixties. These guys played it. What? What? Why did um, the Mekons sort of drift in towards the sort of country music thing? What? What happened there? What? What was that? What was that about? We were into folk music very much. And uh, when we went to do that second album, we were at Leader Sound and we met Bill Leader and then John Gill. And we, we suddenly realized that maybe what we were doing wasn't this kind of solely punk rock year zero thing. It was actually maybe something that was in a broader tradition. And after that, listening to some of this crazy unaccompanied folk music and thinking about what Chalky was trying to do at the time. Mm. It was uh, it was really interesting. And then uh, Terry Nelson was a guy from Chicago. You know Terry. Mm. And he he brought, brought a load of cassettes over. He came to England in 1983, around the time we were recording this thing called The English Dancing Master. Up in Britain. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. And, 
Mm. And that was all drum machines and accordions and violins and kind of weird English country dance type music that we'd listen to through Bill Leader. But Bill Leader was like the kind of, you know, we accidentally found yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, I heard, then we started, Terry Nelson's thing was, well, to John Gill and Bill Leader's thing was like, you're like a folk band because you don't, you like you don't hide your mistakes. You're very open and bare, and everything you do, and you incorporate, you incorporate your lack of ability to play into your sound, and it's like folk music. Then Terry Nelson was like, "You're like a country band because all your songs are three chord songs about drink, drinking in bars and failed sexual relationships," which is, which was also true. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. He, I, mean, I thought I hated country music, and then he started playing this all this, all this amazing, no Haggard, George Jones stuff. Me and Tom and Kevin just really got into that that stuff, and became by the end of the '80s when everybody was into acid house, and we were coming back from the states in our cowboy shirts with our Stetsons on, with bags of you know Bob Wills records and Hank Williams records. <laughs> everybody thought we were just insane, you know, but. <laughs> We were completely out of step with what was going on in England, yeah. And I think, you know, that's why why the band sort of, well, we did Fear and Whiskey, which was a, a record that some people have said, you know, it was the Mekons doing country. It was us It was us doing the Mekons after having listened to a lot of country music, you know. Mm-hmm. We couldn't mm-hmm. really, we never tried to sound like it, but we were so, so steeped in it at that time. But mm. it, was, it was like us getting country kind of, Upside down, or you know, or like Bob last said, we did a he liked the Mekons. He said, We were it was like we did a photocopy of pop pop music, you know, and it's like really bad Xerox. And that's what I think our relationship mm. with the country was. We had no idea what it was all about, but we just took the bits we liked, and yeah. that's where you know, beer and whiskey came out that that took off in the states. And then Ruth Polsky was who brought us over with you and just play her ours in 80. 81 mm-hmm. she she brought the Mekons over in 86 and we just sort of never looked back then we just we just kept going once or twice a year until the yeah. end I woke up one morning I was living in Chicago yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean for with the Mekons you know it's almost like it, it was never about the actual sound you know we never had a defined sound it was always there was a sound of the first band, then there was a rejection of that, and then something else altogether. And it's it's kind of mm-hmm. gone along like that. That you know, it's more like if you talk again about punk rock, the punk rocks maybe punk rock was about the ideas and the attitude more than it was about the musicality or the sonic elements, even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I always think there's. Um that the sound and the musical structure of things is is really important that's that's kind of where i come from is that you know the well yeah what i just said really the 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 sound of it and what's going on in the music what is going on with the the rhythms i mean as you know that i'm fairly rhythm obsessed um and uh Th- things have to kind of 
things have to be right rhythmically for, for me for for it to work you know for 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 what i do to work you know yeah well it it, it has helped with the recons having you know steve Goulding, who played with the gang of four for a bit having him in the, he's been in the band for 20 years this year <laughs> so it's yeah. yeah yeah it does help <laughs> yeah yeah yes i like to think i taught him everything he knows i hope i hope you did no but yeah. i mean the gang, but the gang of four was you know there, there was a there was a kind of rejection in the early things you did of, of that 70s rock it was like mm-hmm. 70s rock turned on its head where all the solos were things dropping out and mm-hmm. you know it was com- i don't know just it was very exciting after yeah and it was all very everything was very very meticulously put together like a swiss watch you know it was um you know because i'm like that you know it it just the it wasn't done until everything had been like finally 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 tuned you know and the where the hi-hat went and the open hi-hat and did it come on the three or the three and a half and and you know, and and that the whole way it was put together was incredibly meticulous, and I think sometimes drove other people in the band up the wall. You know, and um, you know, John would sometimes say to me, "Well, what's wrong with four on the floor?" You know, and um, and I'd say, "Well, yeah, in some circumstances that's fine, you know, and in others it's not." And and Hugo would, you know argue with me a lot about why I was insistent about this beat being there or that beat being there and so it was um you know it was it it was it was not just about the spirit of things it was about this kind of um obsessive getting it this into a, a certain way yeah I mean I think with the early Mekons there was a there was an obsession with kind of minimalism because we were people weren't you know really able to play their instruments very well yeah. in any conventional sense but it was all about what well, it could be really exciting if we just strip it down to next to nothing you know yeah. so no, no and you did it, it ter- you did that terribly well you know um you were the first you were the first drummer in the mecons weren't you because i didn't show up for yes. the first gig yes that's <laughs> right um I was actually um, in the band, but I decided to go on holiday. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, no, I was the first drummer. It was it was fun and interesting, and um, but that's what it was like then, wasn't it? Because we were we felt that we could kind of help each other here and there. Uh, well, I just I just remember the PA and the Wharf Street room, and you know, all yeah, that. yeah. I mean that that PA that we we put together. You know, um, me and John King steaming bits of wardrobe over a kettle to try and so we could bend it into the flares for a base cabinet. Yeah, um, yeah, they were those. Those were monstrous base cabinets. We went, we went to clubs that they would not fit in. They wouldn't go through yeah, the doors. Was, yeah, Andy Corrigan's <laughs> brilliant design. Yeah. It was fantastic, yeah. but it wasn't. You know, it was a kind of. I remember being told off in the student union like by Ros Allen because I hadn't been down to do my bit on building the PA that morning when I was supposed to be yeah. there. 
Well, she was quite right. Was like, oh, yeah. and good for Roz. Yeah, I know. Good for Roz. Yeah, no, giving you a chicken off. <laughs> and I, I probably encouraged her to tick you off about it because I was a, yeah, a good yeah. kind of foreman. I was a good foreman, you know. And... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember a guy in Newport at the Stowaway in my hometown in Newport. The guy was a guy called Dave Bowen was the manager of the Stowaway Club. And we turned up there with that PA and there was ice up the back step on the fire oh. escape. We had to carry it up. And he said, oh, the band's great. You just lose the PA and you'll be all right. He says, most clubs have PAs. We were like, yeah, but that's, we built this one. He says, well, most clubs have them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think he, that was about the last admitted, time we used it. He admitted the fact that they also charge you to use the buggers. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that was the, that was one of the motivations because, you know, we'd we'd support somebody like, do you remember that band, The Depressions? Yes, they were horrible. Horrible, yeah. And and we'd turn up and we'd be booked to support them, and they'd say, "Well, that's twenty quid to use our PA." So that was a big motivation in like, well, let's be independent and get our own PA. Yeah, and and nobody died carrying it up the fire. fire escape so it's alright no it's a miracle they didn't but there we go it's a f- fucking miracle I've now got to go because it's it's 8.30 I've got to go as well great talking to and, you uh, and um, you know if, if you get a chance to come if you come into London yeah I've I might got be in, I, might, I fancy a day in London actually um, I need yeah to, need to speak for a bit so. good luck with the flight and uh, see you soon I hope alright mate ta-ta now Andy Gill and John Langford have both written great pieces for The Talk House, so by all means look them up at thetalkhouse.com music. This is Michael Azared, Editor-in-Chief of The Talk House, and thanks for listening to The Talk House Music Podcast. Thanks to our producer-engineer, Elia Einhorn. For more Talk House Music Podcasts, and for lots of great writing about music by some excellent musicians, visit thetalkhouse.com music.